As we begin this morning, just want you to think about your own life and think about something in your own life that has come about in a very unexpected way. Now, given where we are, I'm assuming there's a number of you that that would actually be that you ended up here in this place. But here you are in Ras Al-Khaimah. I was thinking uh, of, I guess it was last year, of the World Cup and the final between Argentina and France, Messi and Mbappe, which was an incredible game, not just in the regulation, but unbelievably, it went down to penalty kicks. And Messi, who some of you may or may not like, finally won his World Cup. And it was genuinely in a classic, unexpected and thrilling way. Things have been unexpected in the last few months. Wars and conflicts. There are refugee crises in the world in which populations are being moved across borders and nations are being fundamentally changed. What about Scripture? What about Scripture? I genuinely think that the problem that many people have with Scripture is that they sanitize it, they clean it up. They think the scriptures have nothing to do with the real wicked world, not just in which we live, but if we're honest, we know lives within us. People think the Bible is boring. It's prudish. They think God is boring. They sanitize God. Maybe they find God, if if you're honest, maybe you find God irrelevant. But when you read the Bible on its own terms, you would find, if you're reading it rightly, God acts in very unexpected ways. If God is God, you should be shocked that he gives grace when he could absolutely give judgment that he shows himself committed when you would expect him to abandon. If God really is God, he can surprise you. He can be who, he can be what you would never expect. That's how I want to prepare you for Genesis 38 this morning, which is the chapter we'll be looking at. It's a chapter when I mentioned it to Caleb this week, he immediately looked at it and said, my gosh, this is bad. And that's exactly what's hopeful about it. So hopeful. The Bible comes to us and is not just realistic about, but it's revealing to us how bad this world is. It doesn't sanitize anything. And the hope of that is that it gives you hope, certain hope, sure hope. So here's the main point of this chapter this morning. Real wickedness has nothing on the power and promises of God. Real wickedness has nothing on the power and the promises of God. So repent and rejoice. Repent and rejoice. 
Uh, this is one of those chapters, if you're new here, you're just coming along, that I hope would prove to you we are committed to preaching all of the Bible, and we think it is all from God and good news. We'll begin this morning by seeing the very first point, the very first reality of this, this, this chapter in verses 1 to 11. We'll see depravity and death. Depravity and death. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. It happened at that time, the the time being when Joseph, who we were introduced to last week in Genesis 37, was sold by his brothers as a slave, and it was Judah who led that. So Joseph has gone down by force to Egypt. Judah, notice, went down by choice to Canaan. He's going away from his brothers. It's the first hint in this chapter of darkness. He goes down. He makes friends with Hira, who we learn is an Adulamite. Adulam is a city in Canaan. It's about 19 kilometers south, southwest of Bethlehem. But Judah's going deliberately away from his family, the family of promise, making friends with those who are not in covenant with Yahweh. And while he was there, these, tw- these 11 verses span about 20 years. So while there, Judah, verse 2, walked by sight. Judah sees the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. Judah sees, Judah takes, Judah goes. And we don't know her name. We're never given her name. She has a son named Ur. That's actually evil spelled backwards in Hebrew. And then verse four, another son by Judah, whose name is Onan, and five, another son named Shelah. Five verses, Judah becomes father by a nameless Canaanite woman. And I want you to just think back to Genesis 24, one of the longest chapters in the book, that Abraham went to extraordinary lengths through his servant, who would go on an extraordinary journey, find a wife for Isaac, Why? So that he would not marry a Canaanite. This is not ethnic. This is about devotion to the Lord, to find him a wife 
who would be faithful to the Lord. Judah cares nothing about this, cares nothing about the line of promise, the promise that God would bless the whole world through this line. Judah walks by sight. And what happens? Well, clearly, the narrative tells us wickedness begets wickedness. Verse six, Judah takes a wife for Ur. She's Tamar, we learn her name. He's the firstborn. He's wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. Reminded twice, verse six and seven, he's the firstborn. He's the one born into the position of privilege. And once again, he's pushed aside. His wickedness was such that the Lord put him to death. If God is God and wickedness is wickedness truly before and against him, the Lord as Lord has that right. And then what takes place after that in verse eight was a custom that would become known as leveret marriage. Leveret just means brother-in-law. And this was a custom in which it was required, not suggested, commanded for a brother to marry, to uh, give offspring to his brother's childless widow that his name would not decease from the earth. Now, Judah was commanded to ensure this happened. If you want to think more about this, read Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. When this happened, what would uh, be the reality was the son born would be the brother's son biologically, but not legally, which would mean that the older brother, the older brother would be the, the, the legal father, and that son would get the majority of inheritance. So, Onan, we read this in verse nine, he knows this. He knew that this son born to him would not be his legally. So what did he do? He takes some very deliberate steps to ensure that Tamar would not get pregnant so that his older brother would have no offspring. So this is him, this is more than just pleasure without responsibility. This is him purposely, deliberately ensuring his older brother's name deceases from the earth, that there's no offspring. He's rejecting clearly the promises God gave to Abraham to give him offspring as numerous as the stars. Fundamentally, he looks faithful in public. He's a total hypocrite in private. That's what a hypocrite is. They look one way in public. They're totally different in private. Who are you in private? Who are you? That's who you really are. That's who I really am. The Lord sees. He sees us. He sees what others don't. Private always comes before public. Be faithful in private. Onan here is motivated by total selfishness. Not God's purposes, his purposes. He did not want that son to have an advantage over other sons born to him. He didn't want that son to have an advantage over himself as Judah's second born son. And he did, verse 10, what was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death. Depravity and death. Now, I would just ask you as you read this, does God seem harsh, like a tyrant? 
One way that you should see how unexpected it is that God acts is that it should be more of a surprise to you and me that these brothers were allowed to live as long as they did live rather than God putting them to death when he did. God acts in unexpected ways when it comes to wickedness because we think by nature God owes us another day. We think he owes us another chance and we're shocked when he judges We expect that God's going to relate to evil and wickedness like we naturally do. He's going to overlook it. He's going to wink at it, repress it. But after Genesis 3, each each day that humanity goes on, each day that God does not judge is all grace and mercy. What's unexpected here is not God's judgment. It's his grace that these brothers lived even as long as they did. In light of sin, as Scripture reveals sin is, judgment is what God by his nature owes. Grace is what God has gone to unexpected lengths to undeservedly and justly give. Well, what does Judah do? Verse 11 He says to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. And she goes to her father's house. So after all of this, the youngest son once again is rising in prominence and Judah sends Tamar away. Now, why does he do that? Notice it's not because he sees his sons as the problem. He's so wicked, he sees Tamar as the problem. This is the same man who selfishly sold his brother Joseph into slavery, now here doing selfishly what he wants. Judah is a man who sees, but he cannot see reality. He's failed in his marriage. He's failed as a father. He's failed as a father-in-law. He walks by sight. And notice all of his sons walk by sight. To walk by sight is to walk in this world believing that what you see is more trustworthy. What you see is more satisfying. It will lead to more joy than God, than the promises God has made about what you don't see. So in this text, walking by sight is evidenced by those doing what they find most immediately satisfying in the present. They judge that to be better, and so act in light of it, than what God has promised about the future, and so act in light of that. And what did God promise? He had promised to do miraculous things to and through this family. How are you walking by sight this morning? Somehow God hasn't met your expectations that you placed on him. And so you you live by your own reason, by your own judgments, rather than God's revelation. Identify the ways you walk by sight and repent. Have ministry expectations not been met? Marriage? Money? God not doing what you want him to do in your life? 
Who needs to change? Do you or does God? Walking by sight, walking by what you see is so tempting. It's so powerful because it diminishes, it just dulls what you don't see. Now, obviously this relates to sexual sin, but it's not limited to that. You, you can just so settle down in this world because you believe what this world will give you is better than the promises that God has promised to give you. Uh, maybe for you, it's some way of wanting to take vengeance when you know you need to entrust justice to God. Uh, it can be man-fearing. What you see is so big to you. The God that you do not see is so small. Walking by sight not by faith. So what needs to get smaller to you in the way you see it in light of all that God is and all that God has promised? That's what has always distinguished God's people. They then were living for a city they could not see. They were waiting for promises they had not realized solely because God had said it. He promised it. Has God just become small? Has, has his promises faded to you? Do you think he's irrelevant or that he's not good? Often we start to walk in this way because we just start to think God's not good. What I do, what I know is better. And I hope that you're seeing all the pain and the hurt that this chapter reveals to us because people are walking by sight. They're raising what feels right to them, and they see the world and their own thinking as the ultimate standard of reality. And this world is a horrible place to live when this world becomes the ultimate judge and arbiter of morality or pleasure. It becomes a very scary place, a place where Tamar is sent away because she's the one viewed with suspicion not the sons whose depravity has brought their own death. Second, I hope you see the selfishness that just pervades this. Judah has been given inestimable privileges by God. The same for Ur, the same for Onan, and they're both acting in selfishness. What's best for me? Selfishness caused Joseph to sell his brother for money. I checked this week. Current estimates are 8.1 billion people on the planet. And the evidence that this is a fallen world is that the vast majority of people on this planet think the world is about them. Them. Living a life in which people see other people made in the eternal image of God as means to be used for their self-serving ends. Circumstances being assessed in light of how it helps me rather than using that to the glory of God, the supremacy of Christ, the good of others. It's this inward bent. We were made to live vertically to the glory of the God whose glory is inexhaustible, to live outward for the good of others, denying ourselves and selfishness reverses, it inverts all of that. Don't treat selfishness with kid gloves. 
We need to be sobered by what it does to us and kill it. Judah liked what he saw and he took her. So selfishness is not just wicked, it's insane because it places us at the center of God's universe. We were made to live for God, to God. One of the most, I think, provocative realities about Jesus that when you read him is how totally others-centered, how he just gave his life away. The most selfless life on the planet, the most satisfying life on the planet. So selfishness says to you, get everything you can in this brief life. Jesus says, lose your life for my sake, that you might find it. He'll give it back to us. How do you defeat selfishness? Through the superior satisfaction and joy in Jesus. Jesus has power to break selfishness. So the wickedness here, it expresses itself sexually, but its root is in sight and selfishness. 11 verses are marking 20 years of death and depravity. There is not one image of Judah in this entire section, like his father Jacob, mourning death, mourning wickedness, in any way, death and depravity. And that gives way, number two, to promiscuity and promise. Promiscuity and promise, verses 12 through 30. Promiscuity and promise, read along with me. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet, your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are 
the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. Wow. Through all the depravity in the first 11 verses, there's even more death. Judah becomes a widower in verse 12. His wife is dead and then things just unravel. Judah goes to Timnah to his sheep shearers. This was a festival actually, most likely with a decent amount of drink. And he finds his friend Hira the Adulamite. Now notice this, because I want you to see this. He turned aside to Hira, the Adulamite in verse one. It's clear now they're good friends. Judah is friends with a Canaanite. And it is not Judah who's pulling the Canaanite to his God. It is the Canaanite pulling Judah to his. Your friendships matter. In your friendships, what are your purposes? What are your intentions? What do your friendships look like? What about the youth? What about our university students? Are you pushing each other to the Lord? Are you pulling each other in other ways? Are you silent about the things of the Lord? Or do you speak of them openly without embarrassment? Uh, that takes intention. Uh, Judah and Hira are building a friendship that has no regard for God. I loved last week at our prayer meeting what Josh Zazek shared in college, university. He asked that we would pray that the Lord would give him friends that would encourage him in his Christian life. That's a great prayer. Be that to each other. Ask the Lord for friends that will help you follow Jesus. There's no gift like a friend who loves the Lord and who loves you. Helps you walk faithfully before the Lord. Promise you, the journey to heaven is walked with friends along the way who help us. That's not the case here. Judah looks no different than this man, and he acts no different. He sent Tamar away, saying she should wait until his son, Shelah, could marry her. And here she is back in the story in verse 13. She finds out Judah is coming, and she acts. She removes widow's clothing, which she'd clearly been wearing for a while, covers herself with a veil, waits at the entrance of Enam, it means eyes, on the way to Timnah. Why did she do it? Well, Shayla had grown up. She did not get him to her in marriage. Years passed. Judah is not keeping his word. And so Tamar, no longer passive, she acts. And she acts because she knows Judah very well. She dressed what, how she did. She went where she did. 
alone on the roadside. She was hiding herself as a shrine prostitute. There's religious connotations to this. It's meant for us to see Judah is fully absorbed into a world of idolatry. And he's living that way. In verse 15, what does Judah do? He sees her. He's still walking by sight. But he doesn't recognize her. He wants her. She asks him, verse 16, what he will give her. He might have her. This is where her own planning, certainly her own knowledge of who Judah as a man is, comes into sight. Judah says, verse 17, he will send her a young goat, and she does not take him at all at his word. She asks for a pledge. You realize Judah has made promises about far more serious matters. He told her he would give her his son. He lied. How much more shouldn't she trust him that he's giving a pledge about a wicked act that no one will know about? Tamar knows this man. That's why she demands the pledge that she does. But I think Tamar also is demonstrating that she knows this family. She has waited for Shelah, his youngest son. It wasn't happening. And so she plots in this very specific way. She demonstrates, I think, she believes in the God who has revealed himself to this family. She could have looked to marry a Canaanite. She could have looked for children from someone in her own people. Now, her plan is not ideal. She is very ironically the only one in this chapter seeking to further the line of promise. She's like Rahab with the spies in a shrewd way acting by faith, but she needs guarantees. And she asks what the pledge would be. He does in verse 18. And she says, your sinyat, your cord and your staff in your hands. So that's like her saying, I want your residence visa. I want your Emirates ID and I want your credit card. All of them. Judah is so driven by self-gratification, nothing will stand in the way of that. It's everything that would identify him. No questions asked and could ruin him. So you see, the problem with living for self is that it will demand of you, it will drive you to gratify your desires that there will never be a point where you say it's enough. It will drive you deeper and deeper into self and demand more and more of you. Now, is there an area in your life where if you're totally honest, you say, that's me? That's me. Some of you, it might be selfishly serving yourself in various areas. Others of you, you are trying your hardest to justify yourself before God, proving that you are enough. It'll never be enough. More will be demanded of you. Now, we can't leave this passage without being warned against sexual sin, without thinking soberly about the destruction it's caused in very real lives, what it's done to the world, and to be fooled into thinking it won't affect me. It doesn't matter where you are right now, in the past, in the future. Christ is better. 
what he says about this in a very confused world is better. And it is good. It's better than everything this world is telling you, what yourself may be telling you. Just see the destruction that this sin causes in very real lives. Believe God's promises are always better than momentary pleasure. Believe that what you cannot see is actually better, more lasting, more satisfying than what you do see. It brings so much honor and glory to the Lord when you trust him in this way. When you're in the fight in this way. This is a great way that Christian friendship and discipleship can help you and encourage you and will bless you this year in your life. You you don't have to be someone in public and another person in private. Come into the light. Pursue friendship. Talk to someone. Help each other. Walk in the way of the Lord in this way. The Bible gives us hope in Jesus. Judah's friendships here will help him walk in the way of the world. He gives to Tamar into verse 18 what's most valuable, just to carry out his desires, and she conceived. Then he immediately leaves. She goes back into her widow's clothing. It's an account of promiscuity. What Judah wants, Judah takes. It's a momentary act. He couldn't fathom all that would come from it. This is a man who we see living as if he's the center of the world. Not seeing he lives in God's world where God is at the center. That God's plans, God's purposes always succeed. We come to verse 20. He sends the young goat by Hira the Adulamite. Their friendship helps each other get further into sin. Hira can't find her. Calls her the cult prostitute. It's a religious ritual that he thought she was caught up in. The men there aren't aware. So verse 23, Judah decides to just let her keep the things he gave her. Judah was forced to keep his pledge about the goat because Tamar knew he didn't keep the pledge about Shelah, his son. The whole account is over with in Judah's mind. He's moved on. He's coward. He won't show up to give the goat. He sends his friend. I think this whole thing was lost to his memory. One more wicked act that he wouldn't be accountable for. One more person he used for his own selfish gain. When shockingly three months later in verse 24, Tamar has been immoral and is pregnant. And Judah, who has sold his own brother into slavery, who lied about his son Shelah, who himself has been immoral in the last three months, has no compassion. Without any compassion, immediately says, let her be burned. He's not just wicked. He's a total hypocrite. He is willing to publicly not just humiliate her, but kill her while ignoring all that he is. Depravity, death, promiscuity. He's fooled everyone. He has not fooled Tamar. She took every precaution because she knew this man and she sends back the identifying markers there in verse 25. 
Just consider what Tamar has walked through over all these years in this account. She marries the first son, Ur. He's wicked in some way. He's dead by the hand of the Lord. Second son was wicked against her. She alone would have known. He's put to death by the Lord. She's treated wickedly by Judah, not just in him withholding the pledge, but his egregious actions against her. Tamar has been chewed up by this family. She's been spit out and spit on by this family. And yet she's the one, the Canaanite woman, who is being more faithful and having more faith than any of Abraham's children. She brings about what Judah's sons were supposed to bring out, bring about, and what they would not. She is like Rahab, who clearly sees and believes in the God who revealed himself to Abraham. She lives in light of his promises. She's the only one acting in accord with them. Is she doing this in an ideal way? No. But she is demonstrating more faith than anyone here. She's seeing beyond the circumstances to God who has bound himself to this family. So it's her faith, even mixed as it is with the actions that she takes that has impact on this story. It's her faith in the midst of promiscuity that furthers the promise. It's all so unexpected. I want you to see this. Verse 26, the sinuette, the cord, the staff made their way to Judah. And how did Judah, who had planned to burn her, respond? She's more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. Uh, a more exact reading of it was, would be, she is righteous, not I. I think when he saw that, he must have been shocked. I bet there was minutes of quiet when he saw those three items. He was certainly sobered because he could have at that very moment even descended further into wickedness. But unexpectedly, he didn't. For the first time, the first time, Judah very unexpectedly repents. Judah chooses the path of righteousness, not wickedness. He who has walked by sight in the worst ways is starting to see reality as it is. He sees himself as wicked. And he says of Tamar, she is more righteous. He sees she is more righteous than him. And as he sees himself rightly, this becomes the turning point for Judah. The evidence? Here, he did not know her again. I would say that the great news about a chapter this dark, there's so much blatant wickedness, is it shows us clearly wicked people can change. Wicked people can repent, can turn. The Bible holds out real redemption to the world by repenting from real wickedness. I don't know all of you. I don't know your past, your present. 
Maybe the sin in your life haunts you is sexual. But with God, you don't have to hide. He's the God of this chapter who you can bring it to and find forgiveness and grace. God offers real redemption for real sin. But notice, you have to see the reality of it first. Judah finally sees rightly. And what does he see? He's not righteous. The same is true for you and me. The way out of wickedness is seeing yourself as you really are before God. Not as the world sees you, but as God who sees everything sees you. Now, maybe your selfishness, maybe your sin hasn't worked itself out in these specifics. Maybe it has. But the sin that marks this chapter at its root resides in you. And this text hides nothing. And so the text holds out to us great hope through repentance before God, to God. What do I mean? Keep listening to how this account ends. Judah comes to the place of repentance. Verse 27, Tamar comes to the place to give birth. She's having twins, not the first time in Genesis. And during the birth, there's an unexpected change. The first one comes out and the midwife announces and places a scarlet cord on the first child that comes out. But then suddenly, second child comes to be born. And we have here a breach and he's the one born first. He's named Perez, which means breach, a breaking and the other brother who came out with the scarlet thread, his name is Zerah. This whole account, so strange and sordid and wicked, clearly teaches that what man means for evil, God means for good. All of that is the backdrop. Turn to Matthew. Turn to Matthew 1. I want you to see it with your own eyes and hopefully be freshly astonished by what we read here. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Thousands and thousands of years later. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron. What man very clearly meant for evil, God meant for the gospel. Promiscuity led to the promise. By their wickedness, God acted in a very unexpected way to bring about the very birth of Jesus Christ who would live and who would die for Judah's sin, for Tamar's sin, for the real sin of real people all over the world who would repent and believe in him. This is the God who unexpectedly brings salvation through the greatest wickedness in the world to save man. So that's what the cross is proclaiming. The redemption has been accomplished and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead proves it. Only with the God of the scriptures does man's depravity so work to bring about his son's death that God might give through his son promised eternal life. See yourself for who you are. But don't stop there. See 
Jesus in his glory and fullness and believe in him. Come to him by faith, bringing your sin that he might give you his righteousness and let him give you sight to see. God really does rule over wickedness. And in the most unexpected ways, God accomplishes his purposes through it. Oh, what is so amazing about this chapter is that I hope you will never forget how much of a moral failure Judah was. It's not hidden. It's not covered up. And what's so glorious and unexpected about God is that we have seen all of the wickedness of Judah before us, is that with this God, his grace is such that by grace alone, Judah himself, Judah, will have his name written on the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem. The very end of scripture, Revelation 21, we read of the great high wall with 12 gates and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. In a world of death and depravity, the Bible is saying to you so clearly, grace reigns. There's more mercy and forgiveness in Christ than there is sin in us. Heaven will be filled only with sinners who are boasting in grace. And that's the power of the church. Now together we get a foretaste of that. God's kingdom comes into the world in the most unexpected way and it is filled with the most unexpected people. So repent and rejoice and by faith rest in God's promises in Christ.